strike up the conversation on post-show recaps, bringing you coverage of the labor disputes happening now in television and film. I'm Dr. Amanda, and I'm your host for these conversations. As always, I have another great conversation to bring to you today. I will be speaking with SAG After member Mary Flynn. But before we get to that, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so you won't miss any of the great coverage that we're bringing every week, posting on Tuesdays. Um, And you can keep up with all of that by using our RSS feed. That's postshowrecaps.com slash strike when you search by URL on your podcast player of choice. That's postshowrecaps.com slash strike. Um, We would also really appreciate if you can give us a rating and review. It really helps people find this conversation, um, especially uh, such an important topic like this. We would love to get as many people listening as possible. So give us your honest ratings and reviews if you're so inclined. And you can also um, always leave me a question if there's any strike-related topics that you want to know more about, and you can find that form at postshowrecaps.com slash strike FAQ. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in my wonderful guest, Mary Flynn. She is an LA-based actor who um, moved out to pursue her acting dreams several years ago and has been since then involved in many, many notable projects, things that you've definitely heard of, like The Fableman's Nope and I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. She is also a sag actor strike captain. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> well, we're very, very happy to have you on here to talk to us today. Um, it's been a few weeks since we've gotten an update on SAG-AFTRA. We spoke with Chelsea Davison last time, who is a WGA member and a strike captain for that guild. Um, it was great to talk to Chelsea about the really timely developments in the WGA's negotiations with the AMPTP. But um, it hasn't been since Michael Chernis was on the podcast several weeks ago that we've heard what's going on with SAG after us. So I'm really, really happy to bring your perspective to the table. And I always like to start the conversation with hearing more about your background in the industry, Mary, how you got involved in show business in general. Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, originally grew up on the East Coast. Um, you know, I was originally around uh, Baltimore, and I, I saw myself like theaters. My and live performance was more of my first love. Um, but at the time, it was more it was cheaper for me to come out to California than it was to go to New York. So I ended up, you know, finding myself here. Um, and then I really fell in love with the film industry. Uh, my uh, husband is really like, that's where his heart is. So he's more behind the scenes. Um, and I started just really wanting, you know, hungry and just wanting to get work. So I did. And, you know, still take on tons and tons of background work. Um, that's a, a huge part of sag Aftra's membership, too, and how a lot of people get their start in the industry is just being a person in the background. And I had worked on uh, a project in 2019 where I just happened to be right behind the main actor <laughs> for you know the first day. And they were like, ah, crap, we got to keep bringing her back because we're going to film this scene over multiple days. 
and I got all my vouchers on one project um, and I was very happy and like that's opened the floodgates, you know, for all these other amazing opportunities that I've gotten um, by being in the union. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've, I work on a lot of different projects. I mean, not now, <laughs> but I was doing a lot of work on a couple of different projects and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really great, like creative community of, of people, not only just, you know, actors and SAG-AFTRA, but, you know, the WGA and like all these other people I've gotten to meet through, um, uh, filmmaking and, and union activism. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's, so that uh, well, that, that, that's, that's great. Um, I want to learn a little bit more about like careers in, uh, you know, in how you become in like in background, uh, acting. And you mentioned that you were doing a lot of background work when you went out to LA and that's like a great entry point for getting started. Um, and so in order to like, so, so, so explain the process of, what you need to do to become eligible to be part of the union? And then what does that mean once you're part of the union in terms of opening doors for getting more work? Sure. So um, background is, yeah, it's like very entry level. It's kind of like um, a production assistant is like the equivalent. So, you know, to be a background person, you just have to, uh, you know, be able to, to breathe and be a normal person. Um, very mm -hmm. easy to get in there. If you don't know anything about acting, you don't know anything about sets, it's the quickest way to get there. Um, so there's a lot of different, and, and usually they're um, acclaimed actors who have had careers forever that end up starting background casting, you know, like 20 years or so down the line. There's a ton in Los Angeles. There's a lot in New York. Um, but they'll, uh, you just, you get basically get into a registry with these, you know, background agencies. You just kind of, you could start non-union. And usually for TV shows and movies, um, this is how you get into the union, is there's a minimum call for union actors versus non-union. So for feature films, it has to have a minimum of 50 union actors. And then for television, it's 25. So any numbers beyond that can be non-union. So the way people get vouchers or get into the union is if there's not enough union actors present on the day to fill that number, then a non-union actor steps in as the SAG actor for the day. So that's getting uh, what we call a SAG voucher. So if that like say opportunity happens uh, three times, um, it could be on either TV show, movie, commercial, you know, whatever it is, as a non-union actor at any time. Um, once you've hit three, you become SAG eligible. So now you can work both union and non-union opportunities because you're in between until you become what's called a SAG must join. So once you've, um, you know, worked on both for a while, maybe you're taking a lot of union gigs. Um, the union goes, well, you've been working, getting union pay for like a while. It's time to join the union. So you kind of pay the initiation fee, you join the union. And the unions are really uh, opens the door because anybody who talks on camera, um, you know, that guy who's in a project that says, you know, right this way, that guy gets mm. like $5,000 to say that line and is a union actor. In order for you to talk, you have to be in the union. Um even for stand-ins, which is another opportunity that a lot of SAG actors do, is you have to be union to do that. You're essentially like part of the crew in some ways. And they'll basically just, if you look a lot like 
the actor that's actually in the project. They're not going to pay the actor who's worth millions of dollars to stand uh, to stand at the spot where they're going to set up the lights, the camera and stuff. They're going to hire somebody else who's never on screen to stand in that spot. And then they'll set up the camera, send you out, send that actor in. So there's a whole like side jobs um, that are all union actors that you might not have ever seen before. So like stand-ins or photo doubles or body doubles, those are all union covered positions. And it's really important that they are because they, you know, sets are excessively long hours. The average day is about 12 to 16 hours. I've worked 19 hour days, 20 hour days before. And the union is ensuring that, you know, you know, one, that someone from the union is coming to check in on uh, safety and conditions on set. Because there's, with having such a long filming day and, you know, so much chaos that comes with, you know, getting the right shot, you're going to get exploited. Yeah. <laughs> so having a union worker there to step in and say, you know, we have to take the steps to, you know, not have a ton of people in here because it's fire hazard or, you know, this person hasn't had a lunch break in like, you know, eight hours or something like that. That's, you know, part comes with some union protections. So that benefits non-union people too, who are on a union set because it's their safety regulations in place. Um, and also anytime there's a concern on set that a SAG person doesn't, you know, a SAG rep is not there to catch, you know, maybe um, you, a set wasn't paying you correctly or, you know, was violating SAG contracts, like having, you know, a, a non-union person say lines, but not pay them like a SAG actor, something like that. You know, you have something that you can report to, like in any company where, you know, if you have like an HR or something like that, you've got someone to report it to. And then, you know, those uh, productions, you know, held accountable. I mean, that's one of the many benefits of it, but that's why being in a union is so important is safety is really precedent on sets, um, better working conditions, not just for the union workers, but the non-union ones as well. Um, and then pay minimums are negotiated mm -hmm. by the union. So we get better pay because we're in the union. Otherwise they'd have everybody work in minimum wage, you know, <laughs> and that's not livable. And the current rate is not livable. So, and like, if you have a special ability, right? Like you're a dancer, you're a singer, I sang in the Fablemans. So you're paid extra for a special ability, which you should be because you're casted specifically for a unique skill that you have. So that's something that the union also like does. So among, again, this is sort of the short end of it, but that's why when you start in background, that's anybody can do it. Once you get in to these sets where they've set up how many people have to be union to be on the set, that's opens the door to get into the union. That's the most common way that people do it. Um, or if you're non-union and you have a special talent and you're hired because you have that special talent, that's usually like an automatic into the union. Mm you're going to get paid under that special ability rate. Yeah. Um, that's a really, really helpful overview, Mary. Um, you know, one of the things I take from that is just that there's like a variety of ways that, you know, once you're in the union and when the union is involved in a union set that, um, that step into protect workers and make sure that they're fairly compensated. And you mentioned, you know, some of these things like really long days, lunch breaks, um, safety concerns. And um, I imagine that there's a pretty wide range from project to project and what it's like on a set. But I was wondering if you could just give our listeners 
an idea of what some of the things that are involved in doing this kind of work as a background performer um, so that we can get a sense of, you know, what goes what goes into one of these work days? Sure. So, I mean, you'll say like, depending on what the particular project is, you know, you'll have sometimes it'll be more difficult than others, but I'm um, often casted in period pieces. That's like a big thing I'll do. Um, and I'm sort of always like period piece, period piece, period piece. That's like a big, a big thing I'll book. So, you know, sometimes with that, that'll come, you know, you get to set, you know, hair and makeup takes a really long time, especially with period pieces and something that the recent negotiations actually touched upon is if you're having to do work at home, um, especially what's really common for, you know, performers who identify as female or have long hair mm-hmm. is if you have to like set them in curlers, you get instructions from set to say, you know, we want you to come in curlers or come have them rolled up, something like that. And then, you know, they'll sleep in those, and try to sleep in those, they get to set, they'll take them out, have, you know, sit in the chair for like three hours, usually to just make sure that it's period accurate. Then you go to costuming, which, you know, sometimes it's they've done a pre-fit to make it a little bit easier on the filming day. Um, sometimes you just show up and you got to try on a bunch of stuff until it fits. Um, and do you so, get paid for a pre-fit and these other things that go into the lead up to the set day? You get paid if you go to a fitting. Um, you don't get paid to set your hair before you come to set. Mm-hmm. So that's what ended up in, you know, contract negotiations recently. It was a very small thing that ended up in there um, to just try to get like a stipend for doing that. We offer like stipends already. So if you are a SAG actor and you're filming two different scenes, um, which, you know, say you you bring your own clothes to set, that's another common thing. If Mm -hmm. it's modern day, you know, you might bring your own clothes to set. Um, This is uh, often how they'll get around doing this is like, say if a SAG actor has to bring their own clothes to set and they're filming two different scenes. So they need to bring two sets of their outfits. What film, they, you have to get compensated a stipend. It's like an $18, $30 stipend if you change into another set of your own clothes. Um, so what these companies will often do is they'll have the SAG actor bring one look and a jacket. So they'll have them wear the jacket first mm-hmm. and then take the jacket off as the second look so that they don't have to pay them that stipend. Little things like that. yeah. So they already do, you know, these little stipends. So we thought, well, why can't we get it for, you know, curlers or high heels or like that kind of stuff? Because especially female performers are having to wear period piece high heels where the male performers are not. And, you know, stand for 18 hours a day or walk around for 18 hours a day. No stipend, no pay, no rest is, is sort of what it is. And so that's like some of some of the things that go into it. Um, but you're usually, there's some sets where you haven't gotten in front of the camera cause you're doing, you know, costume and makeup and all that stuff until like five hours or six hours after you've gotten there. Um, I worked on one set, which was a 19 hour film day. It was a period piece. Uh, the film just came out not too long ago and, uh, it was a 19 hour filming day. I arrived at 11 AM and I was not used, um, for this scene until 9 PM. Wow. So to go through all the people to like, you know, get hair and makeup and, you know, you also have to now break those people for lunch because they once you've, you know, it's like any other law where once you hit a certain amount of time without a meal break, you know, you'll get a meal penalty, but you got to break those people. 
you know, for lunch. So that's part of it. Also, depending on um, a first AD who's in charge of the safety on set and to kind of keep the production going, time is money. It's like, you know, the longer the set goes, the more money we got to pay people. Um, depending on if you have a good first AD who's going to keep the set moving. Um, sometimes you have directors that are extremely precise. Uh, David Fincher is one of those where he wants to match the camera action with the actor's action. So to, if they're standing up, the camera's moving with them. That takes a long time to really coordinate those happening at the same time. So he's notorious for doing, you know, one shot like 56 times Mm -hmm. to get those movements exactly right. That takes up time on sets as well. So ideally your first AD is trying to move the set along, but oftentimes you're doing the same, what'll end up being just one frame in a movie over and over and over and over again until they get it exactly right. So that adds up in terms of time. And this can be like a lot of effort and endurance just being around in full hair and makeup and wearing shoes and like having to stand like like there's a lot this isn't just you know standing around this is this is this is real hard labor yeah yeah because it's a lot of that seems to be sort of the common misconception and like theater is a lot of work and we kind of will recognize that theater is a lot of work Um, because you know they're doing a full script you know from beginning to end on stage they're doing costumes they're doing singing they're doing blocking Um, and film is really similar except the pages are smaller so you know you might be filming a fourth of a page and that might take a whole entire day to do that so that's but getting those little micro moments or you know if the the core team doesn't come in with like a a shot sheet or a plan that's going to make it go longer. And you as an actor getting hired to the set, you may not know that. (laughs) So you end up being on the set for a long time, which is, you know, why there's now laws around turnaround times. Because if you have to film in the same location for multiple days and you don't have a 10 hour rest period between those two days, I mean, people have died before. So the law was created because a person was coming home from set who didn't have a 10 hour rest between days and they, they uh, passed out at the wheel and they, and they died. Wow. I didn't, I had no idea that that was part of the history of this, Mary. Do you know what year it was that that happened? Um, it wasn't too long ago. I think it was like mid nineties when the incident uh-huh. happened. Um, it's the law is named after that. I always forget this. It's always, it's named after that individual um, mm. who, who passed. Um, it's unfortunate, but a lot of sort of updates or regulations that come from sets ultimately come from like a disaster or death. Um, yeah, it happened. It's really common with stunt performers too, where if, you know, there was an injury or a death that occurred on a set, a new regulation has to be made. It shouldn't be that way. Um, but yeah, that law was put into place and it's, it's, the incident happened in California. Um, but yeah, it was like mid nineties, I think. And Mm -hmm. then the law came, um, years after that. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk to you more about the safety issue because I mean, I've seen lots of television and film and a lot of the things that we see on the screen are spectacular and they're daring and there's explosions and there's, you know, people suspended in improbable situations. And there's, and this is a lot of work not only for our stars but even more so 
the stunt doubles and the background actors. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to what are some of the things that become major safety concerns on set where having a union person there to defend the safety of the workers uh, can come into play. Because I can imagine that this is a situation that comes up pretty frequently that it that situations need to be evaluated for safety. Yeah, on um, both a, what you would imagine as a small scale and a bigger one, because for performing a really big stunt, like maybe we're doing explosions or like, you know, there's motorcycle driving or car driving, like that kind of stuff. Setup is really important. So setting up the shot, rehearsing the stunt, um, like having, you know, having a, a, a EMTs or fire department on standby, ensuring all of that takes time. Um, so setup is when we're setting up, that's time that we're not filming, which is time that we're not making money. That's how a producer is going to see it. But spending that time to really make sure that the shot is executed in a safe way is what makes the set safe. So especially if we're on a time crunch and, you know, maybe we've hit the 10th hour and we haven't done, you know, our driving stunt yet or something like that, then the pressure's on. People are going to start cutting corners, making mistakes to not set, set up the shot properly in order to perform it safely. Um, you mentioned uh, the Fablemans, and that was one of the times where we actually had stunt people on set. Um, there's a shot in the film where, and you wouldn't even think this was a stunt, but there was a shot in the film where they had put one of the high schoolers on like, it was a senior ditch day. There's like a beach scene. And one of the, the high schoolers were all holding like a blanket and they had an actor in or a stunt performer in the blanket and they'd fling the blanket up and, you know, shoot this person up in the air and they'd land on the ground. That was all stunt people that did that. <laughs> so, cause it's a huge liability of, you know, say that was an actor and that yeah. person didn't fall correctly and they, you know, sprained their ankle or something like that. But the, the actors like was really short, <laughs> but really muscular. I remember. And like they shot so that way they could shoot her up really high and then she can land safely. So the people holding the blanket, the person in there was all stunt people. And that shot was probably on that day of filming, we did pretty early in the day. So you do the really long setup at the beginning so you could get the stuff that aren't with stunt you know, performers near the end. But setup is really important. So that's often where producers are just going to see dollar signs if mm. you know, setup takes too long and they're going to figure out, oh, let's just get you know a grip to do this instead. Or let's just get like, you know... Uh, a PA to run, drive this car instead, which has happened. Um, and they cutting those corners is really where, you know, safety gets thrown out the window oftentimes. So it's a lot of the time for setup. Um, yeah. And the, I mean, and, and this is all really, really important, important stuff. Um, you know, obviously being able to have your safety guaranteed and not have that um, your well-being exploited in the workplace is is incredibly important. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit um, more from you, Mary, about what are some like how is the way that background actors get compensated for their time um, similar or different from some of the other conversations that we've been hearing as part of the SAG-AFTRA negotiations and the WGA negotiations. So um, thinking about all of the various different kinds of jobs that a background actor could have from, you know, being part of a 
of a film that's produced by a major studio versus being on a television show that's or a streaming show um, are the same issues in terms of residual pay and, um, you know, base salary apply for background actors and um, other actors in a cast? Yeah, so I'll, I'll answer twofold. So residuals will usually only apply if you speak on screen or are negotiated some sort of special ability. So like, um, since I like say the Fablemans, I, I sang in that film. Um, I had a line in the film. Um, I get residuals on that. So every time that runs, um, I'll get a check for that. Um, background actors um, often aren't able to usually qualify for residuals, but more, but that's background is what gets them in the door to start getting parts that would get them residuals. Mm-hmm. Um, what's more concerning, especially for um, like what's been discussed with the AMPTP and background actors is, um, well, one that 87% of SAG's membership does not qualify for health insurance. A majority of SAG's membership are photo doubles, background actors, stand-ins. Because when you see celebrities, you know, at picket lines or, you know, the ones, the big names, that's like the top 1% of, of people. Yeah. So that's yeah, I want yeah, yeah, and I want to pause and just underline that because I think that this is a huge misconception like amongst the general public about the nature of this um, negotiation. When they think of SAG after, when they think of the actors union, I think it's natural to think of like the red carpet stars, the household names. And Michael Chernis like did speak to this when we had him on a few weeks ago, but he's like, you know, he's a, a a recognizable big star who's been the lead in a number of projects. But if you look at, um, this is from, uh, Forbes magazine reporting, um, according to Reuters, Matt Damon said during a promotional event for Oppenheimer that actors must make a minimum of around $26,000 a year to qualify for health care benefits. And only about 12% of union members make that salary. And Michael Turnus brought this up in his interview. And um, I want to just highlight that again. Only 12% of union members make $26,000 a year. And to put that number in context, um, Pew Research estimates that households have to make $48,500 or less to be considered lower income. So with over 80% of SAG after making less than $26,000 a year, that is lower income. That is many SAG after members under the poverty line. So this is really a, a union of truly working class people. Like even if you have your Tom Cruise's, your Will Smith's, your Gwyneth Paltrow's at the top of the pile, like what we're talking about, the the fight is about this 80% union membership that is like legitimately struggling. Isn't that right, Mary? Yeah. And, and like, it, it's, a, you're exactly right. And it's, it's just, it's despicable, <laughs> quite frankly, um, because the, like, say just in California, you're considered low income or like you need about set to make 70,000 a year in order to comfortably live in Los Angeles or even the surrounding areas. So a majority of members 
are on EBT and like food stamps and like, you know, some are on WIC and SNAP and like for a majority to not even make 26,000, you know, a year is is pitiful. Um, (laughs) And that's why you're seeing even last year, there were big stars who didn't qualify for health insurance because the residual checks that come in count towards the income that you make to maintain your status for health insurance. So it's not like once you've hit 26,000, you qualify for insurance for life is that you have to, for 20 years, maintain earnings of $26,000 yearly to qualify for the bottom tier of health insurance. Mm. because There's three tiers to it. Those big Hollywood actors, they get, you know, the really great top tiers of health insurance the actors who are trying to get to that bare minimum, which is like an HMO, like can't make the $26,000 to get there. So 87% of its membership is background stand-in, you know, photo doubles, body doubles, stunt people, dancers, singers, you know, performers that don't hit that marker. Yeah. That are still working 12, 16 hour grueling days and, 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 you know, and maybe not working continuously, maybe like, you know, having some time between jobs, but who are working hard and contributing to products that make studios and production companies a lot of money and they're struggling to survive living below the poverty line. Yeah. And I mean, when you, especially when you look at a lot of these studio CEOs, um, David Zasloff, who's the current CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, um, last year took home a financial package of $246 million. Um, he earns five times more than Bob Iger at Disney. Wow. Um, and the, he's, it's a situation where it kind of looks like he's just trying to get <laughs> a bunch of money really fast and then leave. Um, cause the turnover at Warner brothers, they've had tons of, they, they've had an excessive amount of CEOs for like a 10 year period that have worked at the company. So these companies make lots of money by, you know, streaming's a, a huge market that, you know, is direct to consumer, but it's with a huge market that is, you know, fast and popular, there's more room for exploitation for a lot of these actors, Um, especially background who are really susceptible to it. Central Casting, who is a huge casting, background casting agency. So like in Los Angeles, in New York, you know, they recently are in trouble with the union because they're trying to get their background actors to sign a form licensing their likeness um, to train AI and, and sell and, and use um, that now the union has to respond to, to that. So that everybody's trying to get in and cash on background actors, images and likeness that they don't have the rights to or, or have you know, used for and can be replicated forever and ever and ever. So Mary, I'm glad you brought this up and I want to um, hear more about this because the artificial intelligence related issues have been at the heart of both the SAG-AFTRA and the WGA negotiations. And, um, you know, we had a whole episode on that with Dan Shipman, who um, spoke from a technical and artistic perspective about some of the issues with AI. Um, I know that the ask from the um, SAG-AFTRA negotiations is the, uh, the language I think is informed consent that um, they're asking for a process where performers would have to give informed consent for their likeness to be um, 
used is a, in in AI to um, you know to to generate a digital version of a background actor. But it sounds like what you're talking about is almost something else that has also already started to insidiously insidiously make its way into the industry. And you're saying that the images that central casting has of their background performers are already being used to train AI models. Yeah. I mean, well, prior to the central casting stuff, I had talked to um, some folks who did background on the flash movie and they did that. They, there was no regulation for AI at the time and the actors were scanned and replicated in multiple scenes of the film. So they were hired to do, you know, one day or two days on one scene. But I, I remember if they had said if it was in the fitting or on the days that they replicated them and then put them in multiple scenes in the film. So that was like happening before we even got to this contract negotiations, which is why it got put in there because <laughs> mm -hmm. they were already trying to do it. And, you know, especially for a background actor who's really desperate for cash, if a studio says, hey, we're going to give you, you know, 500 bucks, we'll scan your face and use forever, you know, like they're going to take, they're going to pry on the fact that they're poor and desperate, you know, take the money. And then, you know, they're not going to have, they're going to have their image used, you know, in perpetuity, like from studios as much as they want without their consent or, or, or residuals on that. Right, know. right. Because as you've said, um, unless you have, a speaking role or a special ability, um, you're not you're 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 not counting on residual pay as part of your compensation for that work. So it's really the uh, is it an hourly rate or a daily rate um, that you're that you're making for showing up on set and doing the work? Yeah, so it's um, for SAG actors. It's uh, the rate currently is like twenty three seventy five if you were a background actor. That's hourly, and then. Um, you'll you'll calculate that for like eight hours, which I think is, I mean, I'm doing the math off my hand here. It's like 175 a day. Mm -hmm. If you're a stand-in, you know, you might get 214 for eight hours. That rate's just a slightly bit higher than a background actor. And then after that, you get um, time and a half for the first two hours after you've passed that eight. Okay. And then once you've hit 18, you get what's called a golden hour. And that's for like anybody. That's, you know, background actors you know big actors if they're there that long 18 hours in a day and there's only 24 hours in a day when right. i left okay. <laughs> so once you've had like say once you hit 18 hours you get that base your eight hour base rate every hour so if i was a stand-in and we've hit 18 hours on a set i'm getting 214 dollars an hour past 18 so that's an incentive that's put in there by the union to get these sets to go wrap it up because <laughs> they, you know, they've had tons of people on sets for too long. So you gotta, you know, you're going to have to keep dumping money into them the longer you keep them there. I knew someone who worked on uh, winning time and uh, winning time is HBO's, you know, new show. And they had a set day of, it was a thousand extras. So 25 of those, which, you know, includes main cast. So maybe a hand, main cast is part of that union number. And then a handful of those background actors might also be union. The rest are all non-union. So that same condition of getting paid, you know, that overtime and stuff happens to the non-union you know, union people. Mm. So they passed that 18-hour mark. So a thousand background actors that are on a set had to pay all that overtime, all that, you know, I am that golden hour pay. 
keep all those people there that long. And like the production ended up going millions of dollars over budget because they would do that kind of stuff all the time. Have a lot of people there and, no, and overpay them for, you know, having well, Yeah, you can that. see why they'd like to uh, have some AI background actors that don't have to pay overtime. Yep. Yep. That's the main thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's always like at the end of the day, if these production companies, all they care about is the financial bottom line, Netflix, you know, like Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery, all they care about is their financial bottom line. And if the project is going to, you know, just turn out profit, like that's like the green light process, right? Is like, we're going to buy this if we think it's going to make money, not for necessarily artistic merit, but we think it's going to make money. They're always concerned about money at the end of the day. Not the people that make it, not the people that work it. And um, it's such a good point. And I had Chelsea Davison on last week, and um, I thought she did a really great job of of coming at this in a way where she was like trying to be as sympathetic to the AMPTP and the production companies and the producers as possible. Um, you know, maybe beyond what I would, but you know, it's 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 not to say that it's like good or bad. It's just that's what the corporate interest is. It's just the way it is, and it's always going to be that way like we can't count on a corporation to have altruism or empathy or all of those things when the entire you know incentive structure is just designed to maximize profit and minimize costs and that's exactly why you need to have a robust labor movement to counteract that because you know production's going to do what they do and they just need to have these protections in place like the overtime pay like you know the the union rules and protections that protect people from getting exploited in the process yeah and i mean yeah it's exactly right because you know, you know, in any and and like this is why unionization in all workplaces is important, not just, you know, SAG-AFTRA or the WGA, but these companies, right, anybody who's worked a job in like, you know, any remote corporate setting or not, they always have this like, we're a family here. We're all a big family kind of thing. And they're not like the bottom employees don't have incentive in the same way that CEOs and shareholders do. Like, you know, Bob Iger and, you know, David Zasloff and stuff, they're given company stock that incentivizes them to act in the interest of shareholders, not in the interest of the employees that work at the company. So if they, you know, make decisions like rapid budget cuts or, you know, shutting down departments, anything that's going to turn profit, it's going to increase their stock value in the company. And some of these CEOs get to keep that stock even after they leave so they can continue making profit off the company, even though they're not working there anymore. So like, that's a huge thing that CEOs get. They have a stake in the company's success, but at the same time, they expect you as like a bottom, <laughs> bottom of the barrel em employee to have that same vested interest without giving you, you know, stock of the company, without, you know, paying you wages that want to keep you there, um, without treating you with dignity and respect. So they're like, we're all a family. We're, we're not. <laughs> we're really not. So yeah. that's, that's part of, I think, the outreach for especially at the picket lines is we're not just having actors and writers out there. Nurses have been out there. Auto workers have been out there. The Teamsters have been out here. Teachers have been out here because exploitation happens in every single industry, not just the, the film and TV industry. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mary. And the and the solidarity, like seeing 
the other unions uh, join with the entertainment guilds has been really heartening. And one thing that I've said on this podcast before, and other people have noted it as well, like the, the one, I mean, one of the silver linings, I think, to the entertainment strikes is that it's providing a platform for organized labor. It's, you know, it's, it's, this is something that the public cares about. It affects, you know, our bread and circus, right? It, like it, it's affecting, you know, our entertainment. So we're paying attention. We know these faces. We have existing relationships and affection for our stars. And it's really putting these labor issues in the mouthpiece of some of like the most talented writers and performers in the country. And I think that can only be good for the labor movement. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I think like it's, it's been sort of a slow burn, but I think the pandemic really um, like 2020, 2021 really like exacerbated all of this because we saw how corporations were more comfortable with letting people die from COVID than paying them you know, what they're owed and giving them safe working conditions. That's made, especially, you know, like, like nurses who are unionized or like, you know, UPS workers, you know, Teamsters who, who represent them, right. They just got a really amazing contract, you know, with like tw over 20% increases on wages for part-time and full-time. The fact that they had to specify there needs to be air conditioning in the truck so that the drivers yeah. don't pass out is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely egregious. I mean, very recently, SAG-AFTRA had to do some rulings on um, people who are trying to take advantage of people in self-tapes, where people are recording and doing auditions at home. And I remember getting an email that's saying, you know, SAG is also going to protect you from people asking you to strip naked in self-tapes. That was happening to people where they were asked to remove their clothes on camera and send that in as part of their audition. And uh, that's crazy that that has to be said. <laughs> wow. But that was happening to people well before the negotiations were occurring, that people wow. were trying to take advantage of people in, you know, down to that level. And the, and the vulnerability of actors and entertainers, I mean, like this is goes back, you know, we've all heard about the casting couch, right? And then Me Too, you know, the, the now, now, now a few years ago, but, um, you know, because of the nature of this industry, performers who are looking for opportunities to break into the business have a lot of these vulnerabilities. Yeah. And, and like SAG is part of protecting you know, those people who really are just eager and hungry for an opportunity and the companies that want to exploit them, even down to like managers and agents, like you can find um, an agent that is SAG after franchise. It means the union has reviewed the practices of this particular agent and said, this is a union, you know, safe agent. Um, and like the sort of the discrepancies between agents and managers is that agents, you know, need a license to practice where managers do not. Mm. So like they, those are the type of people who really want to, can sometimes pry on, um, you know, people who are vulnerable and want an opportunity and someone will go, Hey, you know, if, if you give me 20% of whatever you make on this deal, you know, I'll keep booking you stuff. SAG-AFTRA sets the standard for 10% cut on agents. So from corporations to agents or publicists or all these people like SAG-AFTRA helps to protect the actor from exploitation from like all friends. Like I, the agents that I have, 
um, I found through SAG. I went through their SAG franchise list. And when I was, you know, sending out my information, you know, getting agents and stuff, my, my agent is, is a SAG after one of my agents is a SAG after a, a, you know, a franchise agent. That's a protection that I know that the union has approved this person and I will continue, you know, working with them. I signed a SAG after agent, uh, performer agreed contract. So I have those protections there as well. So there's lots of people who are, you know, looking to take, you know, take upon that vulnerability, especially right. for, for hungry actors starting out. Um, it's really, really important. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you became more involved in the union and, and took on this role as a strike captain. And then I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what being a strike captain entails. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've, I mean, I've always been, um, a strong supporter of unions. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty leftist if you can tell. <laughs> so, I mean, my, like some of my, my first voting was for Bernie Sanders and like, you know, really a part of the unionization, you know, movement. And I started trying to just get involved with SAG on different committees. Um, so I sat on a SAG nomination committee for films not too long ago. And that's where you go to different screenings and we're actually voting to see what gets, you know, approved for SAG awards. Um, so that, that's something, if you join SAG, you can be randomly selected to do that. That's like, you know, every eight years someone can get on this committee. So that was really great to be part of that involvement um, and part of nominating and participating in the SAG awards. Um, and then outside of my SAG work, I already do a lot of, you know, union activism. And then when, the strikes happened, I reached out to the LA volunteers to say, you know, hey, I want to help, like, what do I do? Um, and I got asked if I wanted to be considered as a strike captain. And I was like, yes, please, 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 please. <laughs> I was like, here's all my qualifications. Here's all the stuff I know about unions. Like, here's, mm -hmm. you know, like some trainings I've done, like, you know, let me do it. And uh, I was reached out to by the union, and uh, they were interested in having me be a captain. Um, and then I, you know, just got to watch a lot of the WGA and how they ran the pickets. I was marching with them before SAG officially went on strike. So seeing that, um, how they ran pickets, you know, safely and effectively was awesome. Um, and then I, once they gauged my interest, I got to the picket lines and, you know, just started beating, you know, the SAG staff there and the WGA staff. Um, and they, you know, got me trained up and, you know, now I'm, you know, running the pickets. It's, and they're really fun. Um, that's there's this sense of community that you get, especially on sets where you're you're meeting a lot of people for the first time. You're with them for literally hours. You know, you end up talking about everything usually mm -hmm. in that time. And pickets have created that same sense of like creative community where you're you know you're meeting people at the pickets. You know, you're like, let's go to this. You know, I'm gonna go to Netflix tomorrow. Like, do you want to come with me tomorrow? You know, like that kind of environment is there. Um, that a lot of people like on sets is meeting people. Um, and these, this helps you sort of like weed out the good ones, I think, <laughs> you know, if they're like, they're coming to the picket. So you want to be spending your time with, you know, yeah. like, they're strongly union supportive. That's what you want to be spending your time with. Um, yeah, it's been really fun. Um, the energy is like electric at these picket lines, you know, it's, you're part of a, a radical act. Um, which is you as an individual are making a direct impact on studio profit that's made millions of dollars by standing outside and cheering and, you know, 
making their day a little more annoying. You know, like that's very fun. <laughs> well, I mean, and it's, I mean, it's great to hear because I've talked to a number of WGA members now and some SAG after members as well. And everybody to a person has like expressed just how affirming and energizing and positive the feeling is from the picket lines. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I talked to um, a labor activist and um, union uh, expert, Paul Prescott, um, about, you know, what some of the importance is about, you know, using strikes as a tactic and like what it means in terms of actually, uh, you know, making, you know, leveraging the workers' power. And, you know, the fact that everybody's in such good spirits and the fact that there's been such solidarity, both of these strikes, SAG-AFTRA and the WGA strikes were voted in with such overwhelming majorities, over 97%. And the fact that, like, the, you know, that everybody stayed strong, that the spirits still seem to be good, the unions are ready to stay in this fight as long as it takes. I, it, and, and I think that that sends a really intimidating message to the AMPTP. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it, we're, we're stronger together and it's like, you know, no one, nobody was like, yeah, you know, like we're the first thing we're going to do is strike. It's always a last resort. Like, yeah. you know, we, we obviously want everybody working. We want everybody to be, you know, paid fair wages we don't want it to have to come to this, but the strongest power that any union has is the withholding of labor. Um, you know, if, if they're not going to work with us, then we're not providing the thing that makes company direct profit. They always love to talk about their capital. They always love to talk about the, you know, the intellectual property that they own or the TV shows that are under their banner and stuff. It's the people that made them, the people that create them. That's their biggest financial asset. So we're withholding our labor, which means withholding them exponential amounts of profit. I yeah. just just came from the Netflix picket today because I was captaining over there this morning. Netflix stock has been down for a month. It's been down for a, a full month. There's no peak or anything. And it's because they're they can't make anything. <laughs> they can't they can't make they anything. can't make anything. Um and you know the studios can't promote the things that they've made. So everybody is hurting. Um the producers are definitely hurting. And I think it's so important what you said, Mary, about how the the strike withholding labor, it's it's the only real leverage and power that the workers have. And a strike is a last resort. And it's an important tool because that is the way to exert power because otherwise there's nothing that you can do in a negotiation. It's not like going to be a powerful argument, right, that persuades the AMPTP to make a change in concession to the union. Like the only way to get what you're asking for, which is important for people to be able to live and still have this be a viable career, is to actually withhold labor. Yeah. And I mean, and that's why when we went into negotiations as SAG, why we went in with the strike authorization vote prior, because we kind of saw how they were treating the WGA. And normally how negotiations will go is like, you know, we'll negotiate, we kind of get, you know, this is what they're saying, this is what we're saying. And then they come back to the union, the negotiation committee comes back to the union and we go, okay, we're going to vote to strike or not. And getting that vote after negotiations have been done delays a lot of time. 
So they said, let's go in with a strike authorization vote already. So that when we go to the table, we can say, hey, if we don't come out with a deal, we're striking tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. that was the, the great move on SAG after's part as a, as a big negotiation chip, because the companies already know that if they don't act in SAG after's interests, we're, we're hitting the picket line tomorrow. So that's a, from that, you know, tactic. I mean, a lot of unions, you know, can definitely take note of that because that's I mean, and we weren't the first ones to do that. But like that that tactic, you know, intimidates companies to go, hey, we're going to we'll do it if you don't you know, meet our demands. So that's how SAG was able to hit the picket line so quick after negotiations were finished just because we got that vote beforehand. And with 97% of people saying yes, it means that the problems were already prevalent and affecting people well before we even got to the negotiation table. Um, Mary, what has the progress been in the negotiations between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP since the strike authorization? So we've been at the picket line. Um, SAG after is ready to go back to the table whenever they want to, you know, act right. <laughs> really, <laughs> like if if we're we're ready to go at any time. This is obviously my own personal prediction. Um, you know, not necessarily on behalf of the whole membership in general, but um, SAG after is going through its elections right now. So um, labor law. Um, permits that, you know, we can't change the election for special circumstances when they're supposed to happen. So the national leadership and the local leadership are you know, currently like, say, like Fran Drescher is is up for a lot, like she's running for re-election again. So president and leadership changes every two years. So this was the time. Um, my thought is that the AMPTP is probably waiting until the elections are finalized. Um, and then going back, would go back into negotiations after because they're mm. probably hoping that they would get a different leader that they could potentially screw over in a new deal. Mm. Yeah, because be- Fran Drescher did not come to play. No, she didn't. And like, she's running for re-election and there's, um, you know, other other candidates that are running for president too. Um, and the elections, I, you know, anybody listening, you should vote. Because <laughs> that's a way that we get to participate in the mi- negotiation committee and all the other committees processes, like sexual harassment on set and like having, you know, an intimacy coordinator that was all people who we elected to be on those committees mm. to get that onto sets. So participating in that is really crucial. That's sort of what I'm thinking is they're probably waiting to see if leadership changes before going back to the table. Um, you know, we'll see with how the elections go. Um, so I imagine it, ballots are due September 6th. So that's really soon. So I imagine we're not really going to hear anything until after that time. Again, that's my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but that halt is, you know, we haven't heard anything from from their side, but SAG is ready to go really whenever they want to they want to act right. <laughs> Do you take any cues from what the progress has been with the WGA? And what do you think like that portends for how they're going to come back to the table with SAG-AFTRA? Well, and they, I mean, WGA's negotiations kind of, I mean, that informed why we went in with the strike authorization in the first place is because we saw that they were like, you know, these people are being just absolute jerks to the WGA. So that informed our strategy to kind of go in a little bit harder with the strike authorization. Mm -hmm. And with 
how they've, you know, the AMPTP has gone to the WGA and said, hey, we want to come back to the table, but can you take just basically the exact same deal? (laughs) Or, you know, very recently, the attempt has been, let's get the big CEOs to come in and try to bully you for 20 minutes on why you should take a crappy deal. Mm -hmm. We're, you know, SAG-AFTRA is in direct communication with the WGA constantly during these negotiations to talk strategy um, so that we're really aligned with them um, because they've gotten back in the room and they're seeing that they're just being absolute jerks. I mean, very recently they hired a crisis PR team (laughs) for the PTV. My favorite tweet about this, and I don't remember where I saw this, so I will not properly attribute the tweet author, but it was uh, something like, I can't believe that, the that they're bringing in Olivia Pope to combat the people who wrote and performed Olivia Pope <laughs> like oh my gosh yeah and like the chief negotiator for the AMPTP makes like three million dollars like a year you know mm-hmm. like we the the issue the issue they thought was you know what the press around exploiting people you know is just too gross like maybe we could try to fix that like the the, the court of public opinion has already decided that, you know, being on the side of labor is the side of the working class and is the right side of history to be on. Yeah. So, I mean, I brought this up now on a number of these episodes, but um, support nationally, Gallup polling, support for organized labor is at an all-time high right now. 67% of Americans support uh, the AMP, I'm sorry, support SAG-AFTRA and WJA um, in these uh, disputes. So, oh, and and 67% is, it, it is the majority. I mean, maybe you'd expect it to be higher, but find 67% of people in this country that agree on anything. I mean, this is really yeah. strong public support right now. Um, for the unions. And um, I, I think, and I'm, you know, I, I'm not privy to the production companies, um, but I think that that this has kind of caught them off guard in a way, just how unsuccessful they've been at splitting and sowing division within the different guilds and also, um, you know, turning public opinion against them. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, like our Sarah previous contract, right? Um, it included a no strike clause. So companies probably, I mean, in previous negotiations, definitely thought that they could get a contract that would pull the wool over after dies. You know, I mean, that's why a no strike clause ends up in there, right? You know, that's why when the WGA went on strike, SAG d- didn't immediately go on strike with them because we can't like shut if a, a film had, you know, the WGA strikes, right? There's a film still happening. That's why the press around Deadpool was Ryan Reynolds can't do any improvising. He has, yeah. to, he has to say word for word the script because we don't have, you know, union writers to update it now. Then SAG goes on strike and, you know, now nobody can make anything. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that type of thing that ends up in a contract, you know, is done by corporations who really want to hinder the power of striking because they know it's really powerful, you know, and now we're in that phase where we're striking now. So they real, I mean, they thought, (laughs) they really thought that we were very dumb. And, you know, again, the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of this is that the whole country even has realized, wow, these companies really don't give a damn about me, you know, and 
And now it's, it's now it's time to get them back. <laughs> the profits are that these companies make are egregious and excessive, and it's you know more money than anyone would ever need in an entire lifetime. And it's like you can share a little bit of the pie. These us as unions, WJ SAG after we're not asking for two hundred forty six million dollars like a pop. We're not asking for that. We're asking for what's what's earned. You know what's livable. You know, what's going to help us feed our families, what's going to help us like qualify for, you know, health insurance, you know, pay our rent. That's what we're asking for. Yeah. I mean, this is a low income to poverty profession here. And, you know, and that's just not right. When so much profit is being generated, it's not right that you have people who are uninsured making less than 26 thousand dollars a year. Um, you know, it's just, it's just not right. And I think that, um, the fight is righteous and this time you have the people on your side, Mary. So it's great to hear um, that the spirits are still high on the picket and um, we're definitely, we're definitely pulling for you. Um, And I think that, I think that there is a lot of um, a lot of reason to think that you guys have what it takes to, to win this fight, just like the teamsters just did. I, I'm, I, I love, you know, the, the, the more support and like, uh, I feel a lot of optimism and there's a lot of joy I feel at the picket lines. Um, so I, I think that that is definitely going to carry us through. I mean, it's a, Sean Aston who was on the negotiation committee. I mean, he said, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, everyone who's coming to these picket lines and, you know, the unions were here for the marathon for sure. Um, awesome. Do you have any like fun moments from a picket or like or, or or picket signs, memorable picket signs that have stood out to you? I've been trying to highlight every week what my favorite picture from the picket lines is. And I've been I started this segment and then I've been completely negligent at keeping it up. So this this week I want to shout out this gave this gave me a little thrill. Amy Adams holding up uh, from her arrival performance on her strike it just says human um I really love that movie and Amy Adams's performance of that so I'm gonna That's call out awesome. her her human sign um which I think is really important these are people at the heart of this um yeah. and uh you know we don't want we don't want AI these are people we want to value their contributions uh do you have any fun strike picket moments from being right there on the front line Let's see. I <laughs> I saw this literally today. Um, for in terms of signs, uh, someone had a, a sign that said "Writer Strike Back," and I was like, "That's my favorite Star Wars movie." <laughs> <laughs> that was a cute one. Um, it's been cool, like seeing because you know I'm on the megaphone, like you know yelling the chants and that kind of stuff. So big celebrities do come. Um, sometimes they you know don't want to be announced <laughs> publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, but recently. Uh, or Friday, Nick Offerman came to the Netflix picket line. Oh, I love him. And it's one of those things, right, where you're like, oh, God, please don't be an asshole. Like, you are (laughs) such a wonderful person. It would destroy me if you were a jerk. And he is phenomenal. Like, there's a handful of times where I've seen, it's nice to have, you know, big celebrities that'll come. Sometimes they'll stay for like a half hour. You know, they'll talk to people. They'll take pictures. They'll go. Nick Offerman got to the picket line. I want to say 15 minutes after we officially started and he stayed the entire time, stayed the entire time marching with everybody. And I, you know, I try to, once I you know, see the celebrity, I'll try to, you know, get, make people laugh or whatever on the picket line. And like one, one thing you'll do when you go from one end 
of uh, like a picket line to another is there's going to be a WGA person or a SAG person holding a picket sign. And you kind of do what's called a tap and turn. You hold your picket sign, you tap their sign, you walk back the other way. Mm-hmm. And I think I said something like, yeah, when there's a break in people like, oh, you know, I was really wondering where my next sign tap was going to come from. And then Netflix, I wondered where my next meal was going to come from. And like, <laughs> I yelled that. And then uh, Nick Offerman walked past me and was like, amen, you know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so great. And I, I sort of off the mic, I said, thank you for being here. And he, he was like, it's my pleasure. Uh, but he, like, so stayed, adorable. Stayed the whole time. Um, and this was just before the hurricane that hit here. And he came up to the SAG staff as we were closing stuff. And he just, you know, thanked everybody for, for being at the picket. And he had made a joke and said, so I came. So it's over, right? We won. And, like, <laughs> laughed. and you know, he, he was a really, really good guy. That was that was, highlight of my life was was seeing him there because he was just really down to earth and like wonderful at the picket. Yeah. Oh, cool. that's amazing. That's exactly what you want from him. Down yeah. down to earth and um a good solid guy. Um well that's amazing, Mary. Thank you so much for for joining us and sharing so much of your experience. Um, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to highlight about the strike or about careers in the industry that you wish our listeners would understand more about? Um, yeah, I would say anybody can be an actor. Any any there, it's a job that you know, regardless of your background, you know, your gender, your race, you know, wh- whatever you are, you can be an actor. And I've always believed that acting is about servitude. It's serving the character to tell someone else's story or even, you know, your own story. It's always about empathy at the end of the day. So being in a union that empathizes with its other performers is what acting is about. Um, anybody's called to do it. And I think even if you aren't um, in a union coming to the picket lines, you know, really learning about, you know, what the union does for you and, you know, meeting people helps to, um, you know, decide your next steps going into the industry, I think. Um, So I would encourage anybody who's not in any union who just, you know, wants to come and experience it, like definitely do it. Um, Bring your sunscreen, bring your water. It is so hot out here. Holy cow. (laughs) Stay hydrated, that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, I think anybody, if you're in a union or not, um, should come do it and see the solidarity. It's 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 really um, impacted me in a huge way. And uh, especially the people who are at the ticket um, should come support. Um, Say you were here when, you know, the history tells our story, you know. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Um, So um, where can our listeners keep up and follow everything that you're doing? Obviously, I know we we know that you can't promote any of your work, but um, can we follow you on social media? Anything else you want to plug? Um, yeah. So, uh, once we're able to promote again, you can watch my stuff. Um, (laughs) but I'm on social media, you know, um, I think on Instagram, I'm mary.flynn.97. I'm posting, um, stories from the pickets all the time. You know, um, that's a, that's a big place. You can find me there. Um, I'm pretty much on everything. I think once you, once you go to the Instagram, I'm really linked over that way. Um, if you're interested in, uh, the, destigmatizing of reproductive health and, um, you know, the discussion around menstruation, you can uh, listen to the podcast Tampon Talk with Mary after listening to this one, after listening to this one, because <laughs> these episodes are up to date. Tampa Talk is not. Uh, but if that's something you're interested in, you can do that too. <laughs> 
Um, great, great. And we've also been plugging the Entertainment Community Fund on yes. here so that listeners can, uh, if they have the means, donate to help the striking workers make ends meet while they're fighting this important fight. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. And um, I'm so grateful that you joined us today, Mary. Really, really fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. <laughs>